Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. Just talking to everyone that will listen, that I wanted to speak, I wanted to get out here and I wanted to tell people about my story. I was ready. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. My name is Sabrina Greenlee. I am a proud mother of four and even prouder grandmother of five. I am a survivor. I didn't ask for this, but throughout many adversities and life tragedies, um, I have taken a vow to just go out and help women and children and tell everybody about my story of domestic violence, um, multiple, multiple um, relationships with uh, being abused verbally, physically, emotionally. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm on a crusade to help as many people as I can. That is who Sabrina Greenlee is now. In the many years of telling stories of domestic violence victims and survivors, I've never interviewed someone who has described the actual details of their physical abuse with such specificity and granularity, where her injuries from her abuser were so visibly apparent. She was burned with acid and lost her vision. There are so many intersections inside this story. Sabrina Greenlee is the mother of four children and grew up and raised her children in a little town outside of Clemson University, Central South Carolina. I grew up right around the corner in Clemson. Her son is a former wide receiver star from Daniel High School, Clemson University, and now one of the leading receivers in the NFL playing for the Houston Texans. His name is DeAndre Hopkins. We called him Nuke. I went to Daniel High School and worked for Clemson football with her brother, Terry Smith, former receiver who also played in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts. He died from a domestic dispute. Sabrina has been surrounded by domestic violence all her life. And this is a story of a survivor, of a crusader, of a lady who embraces her scars to tell a larger story, to help women overcome and transition back into the real world after a traumatic experience of domestic abuse. You know, when we sat down that first time and we started talking about your story, mm-hmm. some of the things that really I went home and really thought about was your commitment to be a mother. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a mother for you? Because from our conversation, that's that idea changed for you in many different ways. Mm-hmm. But I feel like your story is grounded in the idea of being a mother. Mm -hmm. Talk about what it means to be a mother. Being a mother to me came natural at first. It was something that, because I was a nurturer myself and having to, um, you know, help raise my brothers. But being a mother and having the will to live is totally different. Like my children gave me, I never understood how 
one person can fight so hard to get back to being a mother, um, especially after um, that was that that was threatening and almost taken away from us. Being a mother now is amazing. Um, however, there was a lot of hard times. And when I talk about the will to live, um, that means, you know, laying in the hospital bed, blind, um, hurt, um, scarred, uh, confused. And um, so my four children gave me the will to, to live and um, and um, and just fight to get back to them. So, that, I mean, that that is what when I think of about a, when I think about being a mother, I think about fighting, fighting to 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 get back to being a mother and um, and not giving up. That was tough. When we sit here and have a conversation, um, I feel like you're looking into my soul. <laughs> and I say that in the most deepest, honest way. Because <laughs> you can't see me. You just admitted that you're blind. Yes. But here I am. I'm looking directly at your eyes. Mm -hmm. And we're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, I see that you have scars right mm -hmm. here just above the line of your blouse and you mm -hmm. have it on your arm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that you wear, you're not covering those scars and you wear them very outwardly. Talk about your scars, describe them for me. And then I want to talk about your story about how that came to be. Okay. I, yeah, I definitely am not hiding my scars. Um, my children tell me every day that I shouldn't even wear makeup. They say, mom, you're beautiful, you know, you, you know, inside and out more so now. But yeah, my, I, um, I'm proud of them actually. And it, as, as twisted as that sounds, there are so, when, when, on this journey, um, I would say as far as, um, you know, dealing with a lot of women, there are so many women that I've encountered that, that has scars. They're wearing them on the inside and, um, you don't see them. You can't recognize them. But as soon as they start speaking, they're hurting, they're dying inside because of domestic violence and all these other things. So for me to exemplify my scars on the outside, for you to see them, they tell a story. It's a roadmap to, to these scars. And, um, I'm actually, um, not ashamed of them. They, they make me who I am. Um, like I said, it was a long journey getting to this bold and courageous point in my life where I can go to the grocery store or go to my son's games and, and don't care who's looking or what they say, because I mean, this is my life. This is who I am. This is my journey. And I'm actually proud of them. This is the first time I've interviewed a domestic violence victim where we can see the physical scars. Mm -hmm. We have spent years interviewing people, you know, women talking about their emotional scars and their mm -hmm. mental scars and, and the things, you know, the triggers that set them off when they get scared. And I've had to be very careful with my voice, not to raise it too high. Yes. Because, you know, it, it's those little things that are very hidden that you have to dance around. Mm -hmm. But what does it mean to be outward to tell your abuse story? Has that, how did you get to the place to come out and say, this is my story and daggum it, I'm going to tell it, you know, 
was there a moment in time when you realized it was time to start telling it? Mm. Yes. When I think about a moment, I think about being in the hospital, um, not wanting to live, um, feeling like my life was over, just to, you know, the, the confusion set in. And there was a moment where um, my daughter, uh, Shantaria, um, was asking me for food and asking me, you know, could she get something to eat? And I remember, you know, coming home and feeling so broken and less of a mother, less of everything and just... And, and in that moment when she said, you know, can, hey, mama, can I get something to eat? She was four years old. And I thought to myself, I said, this, like, what mother can't get up and go get her child something to eat? And I thought I could either sit here and wallow and, and, uh, commit suicide, hurt myself, go through all these things, or I can, muster up the strength to go down the hall and try to fix her a sandwich or find out what was in there. That was the first time that I had ever even come out of my room or come out of, um, or, or even came out of that vicinity that I was in for many months. And, um, it felt good to, to, to get back to doing something that, that I had been doing for so long. And so I, when I think about that moment, there were many more, um, but that was one that 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 I, that stands out to me was um was getting um getting her something to eat. Let's talk about what got you there. Tell me about the story. The moment that you got the phone call to go see your boyfriend, and when you arrived, something bad happened. Sure. Never forget it. Um, 2002, July 20th, um, walked out of my house at exactly 12 o'clock noon. Um, I was, um, been dealing with a guy for the past, I say three, three, three to four months. Um, all the signs were there. Had, um, I had gotten a phone call earlier, um, from an ex-girlfriend of his. Um, he said, Hey, you know, that's my, you know, that was my sister. Um, she didn't want anything, those type of things. I ignored it. Um, this particular day, um, he was going to school, ITT Tech in Greenville. And I, um, I said, sure, you know, take my car. Well, he took my brand new car. I woke up and, um, right when I, uh, got ready to, um, get up and get moving around, um, my cousin called me and says that, um, hey, let's go out for lunch. And I said, sure. So I realized that my car is missing and um, I get a call from him and he says, you know, hey, um, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm at school. And my cousin had already told me that that wasn't true. So I said, hey, where are you? You know, I want my car. Why did you take my new car? You, you were supposed to take the other car. Um, an argument pursued. And I decided um, I need to know where you are. And so I'm, I get in my car. I get another call from him. And he says, come to 
um, this location. I'm here. I proceed to that location. I get another call and he says, um, come to my mom's house. Well, I knew that I already had the, uh, the first address and I, I go there. I see my car and, um, I pull behind it. I get out, um, observing the car, which I know it's mine because it has a new tag. And he comes out of the uh, apartment complex and he comes out and he's hysterically saying, um, you know, I can't believe you're here. Why did you come here? Um, you know, you shouldn't have come here. And I'm so confused at this point because I want my car. I'm done. I'm at my wits end. However, um, I'm listening to you tell me that, you know, hey, I, I think she's pregnant. All these things transpire. He grabs my hands. He turns me around and uh, we're arguing and I'm in front of the car at this point, my new car. And um, um, a young lady comes out of the apartment complex and she has a cup of what I know now to be um, red devil eye liquid form mixed with Clorox. And she mixes these two um, things together and she runs and she dashes these chemicals on me. Um, I later found out in a court that um, mixing those two together got up to 400 degrees. So, I mean, she she burnt her hands in a matter of seconds just trying to get this on me. So she dashes it on me. I instantly um, fall on the grass fighting for my life, I, in my mind, I thought, why would someone splash warm water on me? It was just a calm, warm water feeling is, is what I thought. But as my breathing gets shallow, I realized that it's, it's, it's definitely not water. Um, I could hear things going on around me. I actually was laying on my back. I could look up and see the sun. It's midday. And um, all of a sudden, it's like a curtain closes over my eyes and my eyes, it's, it's a white curtain. My eyes instantly go blind. Um, so I'm laying there and I'm, I'm dying. 17% of my skin has instantly slid off of my body from my neck to my back, to my chest, um, even my face. And, um, I'm, I'm breathing, I'm breathing and get shallow. I can't move. And um, he pick, he comes, he picks me up and I hear his voice and he puts me in the car, um, the new car. He takes me up to a, a gas station. Um, seemed like a million miles away, but it was only maybe three minutes away. He um, takes me out the car. By this time, I have a blood trail. I'm, di I'm dying. And he takes me into the gas station. The attendant immediately starts screaming and... Um, we, they, they both carry me um, to a water fountain on the side of the, the register. And um, they're splashing water in my face and they don't know what to do. She calls 911. She shuts the store down. Um, I don't hear his voice anymore. Um, he basically leaves me there to die. Um, so from there, um, the ambulance takes me to Greenville. I stay there a matter of a couple of hours. Um, I got helicopter flown to Augusta, Georgia burn center where I stayed there a little over a month, um, a couple of weeks in a, in a coma. 
and um, woke up blind. Is this the first time you'd experienced domestic violence? No, not at all. And if I, you know, like saying that this is the first time, they, my life has been a domino effect of domestic violence that led up to that point. Um, so I would say that, I mean, I was the first time that I was abused was 14 years old. Um, right after my brother passed away, um, I experienced him dying. So of course I'm 14 broken, confused. Um, my mom, um, my mom decides to, you know, um, just kind of go into her own, um, shell because she's, you know, she's, she's hurt and, and she's, she's doesn't have a, a will to live. Um, and so does my dad. So it kind of leaves me kind of out there and, um, meet a guy. He's going to tell me he loves me. He's my savior. Um, we're going to live happily ever after white picket fence, dog, the whole nine. I bought into it, believed it, um, was with him six months when he first started abusing me. However, being abused by him was definitely better than what I had at home because my brother had died and, 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 and home wasn't home anymore. So yeah, I, um, that was my first, um, my first abuser, I later went on to marry him the same day that I turned 18, um, was abused for two years straight every day until um, I decided to get out at the age of 20. The most interesting part of all the stories that we have talked through with many of the victims is that, and the survivors, is that they're... It, there's always this one point that they finally decide that I'm going to break through. Mm -hmm. But everybody's place is different. Mm -hmm. And you hear external voices saying, why doesn't she just leave? Mm -hmm. How can she do that over and over again? What would you say to people that it's not as easy as it sounds to just leave, is it? No way. When you have emotional ties... As I've learned now, a, a lot of women stay for financial reasons, stability. That wasn't my case. I was emotionally attached. I was broken. And so I, I, I attracted brokenness. He was just as broken as I was. And, um, and I went for the bad boy image. I, I mean, if you didn't have some ruggedness to you, I didn't want to deal with you which is such a psychotic way of thinking, but that is what we do as women when we're broken and we hurt. And um, so my thing was, I thought I could fix him. He thought he could fix me. And yeah, you stay in it because you, because, but you, but you don't realize it's, it's subtle. I mean, the very first time that, that someone told me, you know, Hey, don't look out the window. What are you looking at? You're looking at another man. I literally was looking to the right and there was two women, but he, he wanted to gain control. So I knew after that to just look straight. I loved him just enough to do it exactly what he said. And, and so that was just, that was just a, a subtle way of, of, of gaining my control. And then after that came the arguments, you know, I saw somebody looking at you. So no, it's just not that easy. If, 
if we can make wave a magic wand and every woman instantly can just leave, it would be it would be amazing. But that's just not the case. It takes a lot of courage for a woman to leave what they know and and what they're used to. I mean, it, it's it's the man has total control at this point. No one wakes up and want to get hit, but you do it because one of ignorance. You nobody nobody thinks that you're gonna die because of a man hitting you. It just happens. You know, that's not that's the last thing that you think about, but it happens over and over again. So, you know, to be ignorant and say, hey, I, you know, why didn't you leave? You have to factor in all these things of why a woman stays with their abuser. Now, a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. Let's talk about when you finally decided to break the cycle. I'll never forget sitting in that restaurant and you told the story of laying in the bed and you wanted your daughter to come climb the bed. And she had a term for you. Mm -hmm. And then one day it happened. I Mm -hmm. want... Will you share the story, that story? I would like for you to share the term. And I would love for you to tell us the moment that you made that commitment to change. Mm. Well, I had came home and I was laying in the bed and the other kids were a little bit older. Um, My youngest daughter was four and she had not come in the room where I was. And she would, wouldn't come in the room. And she kept saying that that's a monster. You know, that's a monster. Why did she call you monster? Because of my face. Um, it was actually um, hideous looking um, to me anyway. And I couldn't see it, but I could feel it. Um, I had just had um, a string graft taken from my arm and put on my face. So it was really, really swollen. Um, I couldn't see and it was really dark. So like um, the majority of my right side of my face was really, really dark. And so that's why she thought her mommy was a monster. Um, And I say that because she would say that and they she so so what she did was she would come. They would bring her in the room and she would come to the door and just kind of look. And they would say, that's mommy. She's like, no, 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 that's a monster. So then she would take off. And I would just cry. And I thought, oh, my God, like, she's never going to come to me. This is it. And I would get so down and depressed. The very next day, they'd bring her back. And she'd come to the door and she'd peek her head in and she'd look. And they said, you know, you know, that's your mommy. And she's like, Mm-mm, no, no, that's a monster. That's not my mommy. That's a monster. 
And um, I after this went on for two whole weeks and um, they just didn't think it was fair to me to have to, um, you know, go into this big crying fit afterwards. And so finally they gave her a couple of days and they said, you know, we're going to see mommy. She would get excited to come. But when she got there, I wasn't the person that left that day at 12 o'clock. Um, and she was the la actually the last one to see me leave when I left the house at 12 o'clock. She was standing at the screen door when I left um, that day. And, you know, imagine coming back um, a month, month and a half after um, with all these scars and bandages on you. And um, but it just hurt so much because she really um, didn't know who I was. And finally, one day she came in the door after after about two weeks and she came in and um she went to the, came to the bottom of the bed and I, I didn't move because I didn't want to scare her. And she came and kind of got beside me and I said, um, Hey, and she said, Hey, and, um, I said, um, I'm mommy. And she said, you're my mommy. And I said, yes. And she says, Oh, okay. So you're not, you're not a monster. You're my mommy. And I said, yeah, baby, I'm your mom, I'm your mommy. And um, she laid there for hours. People kept coming in, peeking. And it was just like she 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 never left. She was just there. We were she I mean, it, it, it happened. It happened. And um, she's actually um, just the same way today. She, she's still still by my side. You told me that you laid in bed and that you prayed that if she would get in bed with you mm -hmm. and just climb, and play, climb into the bed with you, mm -hmm. if that one thing would happen, you were committed to the rest of your life building a family and a home. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. Share that moment when you made that commitment. I was in a I was in a bad place because I thought this is you know this is my baby and before that day that tragic day I mean we were inseparable and so yeah I prayed a lot and I cried because the other kids they had a little better understanding of what had happened and she she had no idea and so her getting in that bed that day and and cuddling with me it was like the beginning for me. I knew there was life. I knew that I could live. And um, I shut down before that. I was like, I'm not taking my medicine. That I'm not doing surgeries. I don't care. And so it, it, it gave me what I needed, like a big breath of fresh air for her to, to be in that bed and to say, you know what? Like I have something to live for. Um, yeah. What happened after that moment? What was the new life? the new life. Oh, it was jazzy. It was, um, I was jazzy. I, I, I think some people was like, Oh, I think we liked it better. Just kind of laying around. I got up and I, I started, um, just wanting to kind of regain everything that I felt like I lost. Um, the new life was tough to be honest. Um, going into, Football and basketball games, blind, people staring at you, people walking up to you saying, you're still pretty. 
I remember that because what is still pretty? Like, am, does, am I not pretty? Am I pretty? Like, what's still beautiful? I don't, I, I don't get it. And so giving the pats on the back, like the pity pats walking up to you, um, hmm, that was tough. And, but I kept going and I kept going. And I remember sitting in the, um, in the gymnasium one day and I thought, I'm going to fit in if it kills me. So when I hear the basketball go that way, I turn my head. And when I hear the basketball go that way, I turn my head. I had no idea what I was doing. I just wanted to fit in. And so, I, I, but I, I was persistent. I wouldn't stop. I mean, my, that was my new normal, which was very abnormal. Um, because so, you, because you came out, you were jumping from domestic violence situations. You were a mother of four. And then all of a sudden, you wanted to be a real mother of four. You wanted to build a house mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. they would feel safe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then from there, you wanted to build a new life. And that took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. I actually decided that I was going to take control of my life. But I knew. So what I did was, while I was sitting around depressed and moping, I allowed my children's destiny to be in the hands of their teachers and their coaches, which I commend for putting forth that effort. But th those were not these people's children. Th these are my children. And so as I began to get up and get my willpower back, I knew that I had to take, take, take back total control of two, you know, two boys and two girls. And so I started, I enforced curfew. Um, I and I mean when when something happened in in my home it was consequences. And I'm not talking about like oh a pat on the back and and hey just don't do that again. I'm talking about when when they're like DeAndre and Marcus was at school <laughs> I physically went in there and removed a TV out of their room one time. TV VCR at the time a stereo, all of this myself, trying to prove a point. I was super tired by the time. It took me all day to do this. But I wanted to prove a point that you don't get the luxury of of doing things when you do something that you're not supposed to do. So, yeah, I was a disciplinarian. And, and, I, and I didn't mind going to the school, couldn't see. But they, I had the counselors on, on speed dial. I was determined to give my children a better life and different circumstances from their friends, um, you know, that they were, were dealing with at the time. And, and not only that, but just inside our four walls, we were, we, I was determined for us to be a family. Talk about that transition from building your family to now you are committed to helping other people that are dealing with these issues. Talk about your commitment to helping other victims. I think I think it was an easy transition from going to um you know putting my family structure together and saying, you know, hey, you know, we're not going to let this take us out. Um we're not going to be victims. Um this is what happened, but we're going to live with it. We're going to deal with it as a family. We're going to move forward. So the transition into helping women um, it was, it wasn't, 
it wasn't hard to figure out, you know, where I, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to focus on. I just sit there and thought about what hurt me the most. And what hurt me the most was men, you know, coming into our lives, my life and, and physically abusing me and, and knowing how, how hurtful that was and, and me and that enabling me to be a, the, a mother to my four children. So, like I said, that was the easy part, but I'm, of, of course it was tough, um, hearing the stories and, and as I go on this journey now, I mean, some of the things that I've encountered, um, I didn't encounter, but you know, the message is still the same that I give out. Like there's life. Uh, look at me, um, take from me. Um, when you, when you look at my face or what I've been through, um, Complaining over a light bill, you should never do that again. <laughs> Complaining about who's going to wash the dishes and, oh, I broke a toenail or, you know, I don't have gas in my car. Get over it. They, I am, I am blind and I wake up every day determined to make a difference, not only in my life and everybody that I come across, but lives of women that, that are, are really, really out here getting abused and killed. And so, I mean, after you've been through that, what I've been through and, and, and made a vow like I have, it, it's easy. It's not, um, it's just, it's just, it's just easy to, to do, um, go out there and help people. You know, um, our connection is very unique. You know, I, I grew up here, mm -hmm. you know, you went to Daniel high school. Sure did. I did too. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I knew many of your, your family members. Okay. Um, I knew your brother mm -hmm. and I knew that for someone to come out of this area against all the odds, because the odds were stacked against you. Oh yeah. How could someone come out and create an organization like smooth? Talk about that and what that means. What is Smooth all about? My organization is everything to me. Um, I founded it five years ago. It's called Smooth. It's Smooth Incorporated, and it stands for Speaking Mentally, Outwardly Opening Opportunities Towards Healing. So just that in itself, it means that I am now outwardly, mentally speaking, and creating opportunities for healing and for women. Um, I had no idea prior to like laying in bed and praying once again and asking God, which direction should I go? What should I do? I know I've been through all of this, but I don't know what else to do. And um, just talking to everyone that will listen that I wanted to speak. I wanted to get out here and I wanted to tell people about my story. I was ready. And um, I just remember, you know, my first place was at Easley Library and I probably spoke to 10 people and eight of them was my family members, <laughs> my mom, dad, you know. So so it has not been an easy journey, um, but I, I thank God for the organization now. I have 13 uh, beautiful women that are 
are just willing and loyal to do whatever. Um, my both of my daughters are in the organization, and um, it's growing, and I'm I'm excited about the um, the the organization. Now, what we do, the transitional part, um, we take women and, and women and children and their families, and we provide um, the the aspect of 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 counseling. Uh, mentoring, outreach activities, um, just giving back to them, pampering, showing them um, any and everything that you could think of after the abuse, um, because that's what that's that's what um, that's what I stand for. I stand for um, on the other side. You know, there's life on the other side, and and you can do it. And so I found, I figured out, you know, my calling when. Um, realizing like, just, just what have I been through and what got me through and what did I need when I was coming out? Um, because I wasn't always bold and courageous or, you know, willing to talk. So what did I need? I needed somebody to give me a push. I needed somebody to say it's okay. And that's what, that's what, um, the women in my organization do. We're there. We get out here and, um, you know, there, there's many areas that, that you can help, you know, the preventative part. And um, all these things, but we do the transitional part, the transitioning from the hurt to the healing. And why have you decided to start working with Safe Harbor? What made that a nice partnership? What what led to that, and what is what does that mean? Safe Harbor is amazing. For one, they give women a place to go and give them hope when there is nothing else available. I mean, they have, they give them beds and they, 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 they make you, they make these women feel um, safe in that moment and, and their children. And um, it was just only right that I partner with them in any way that I can so that I can provide my organization's assistance and, um, you know, just be able to love on some women as they're coming out, as they're transitioning from Safe Harbor um, and into the real world. Do you think it's more, it takes organizations like Smooth and Safe Harbor and all these organizations to partner together to work with women that are experiencing domestic violence? Oh, Oh, absolutely. One organization, one person, one entity, that's not going to cut it. I mean, you, you, you have to have all these pieces into play there. I mean, when you have something as severe as domestic violence, there's pieces of the puzzle. There's moving parts always. And you, you need entities that can help put these pieces together. Um, I deal with the transitional part and, um, they deal with, you know, a woman, the shelter and um, the the convenience that, you know, the comfortability of, of having a woman come in and that, that security. And so those just those are just two little parts of the puzzle. Um, you, you need all of these things. It's important for organizations to come together, to partner together, to just see how can you help. And um, and and you just don't you have no idea how how big that is to to just reach out and say hey you know this is what i provide you know what this is what i can do 
and you would you'd be surprised um how small your organization is that it still can make make such a big difference there are going to be people that are going to show up at this event um at the table the event that are coming to the table mm-hmm. and they're going to be asking what i what can i do what's my part what would you say to them give nothing is too small to give um to safe harbor to my organization to organizations out there that are 501c3 set up the organization um they're you know nonprofit um these organizations are set up to help and i would say give the last question I was debating whether to talk about this. <laughs> But we can't avoid the fact that we are surrounded by domestic violence every day. Mhm. It is in corporate America. It is topical in the news every day. Mhm. And just let's just be frank, it's all through the sports industry. Absolutely. And What better platform to have a son doing what he's doing and having a mother stand alongside him, mothering him, fighting the one thing that he is probably surrounded by. Mhm. Is that empowering to know that your children are you have a son that does one, another son that does another, two women that are the benefactors of domestic violence but also the change makers. Mhm. What is that like to know that you're creating this next generation of children that are going to change the face of America when it comes to domestic violence? Feels good to leave a legacy knowing that my son stands for something amazing big life changing my daughters my other son um and and to just support he's surrounded by masculine men um a sport that is um challenging and competitive and um yeah and these these things are real in the NFL however if we can get together partner and and him take a stance on domestic violence with his mother of course i wouldn't have it any other way <laughs> let's be real but yeah to for for us to partner it's amazing um not sure if it's been done like that before um we we're going to be trendsetters um This is our journey and I'm 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 proud and I'm I'm excited to see where it's going to go. Um he doesn't have an organization. He's not he's not once again, he's not going to overtrump his mother. So he has no other choice but to partner with me. But no, seriously, he I I think this is this is we're on to some good things and we're definitely going to leave a legacy of um of um of just supporting such a such an amazing cause and um 
yeah, it's it's world spread. It's it's worldwide. It's in the NFL. But I mean, all it takes is one person, one person to to say, you know, to stop domestic violence, to stop, put an end to it, and and take a stance. And people will follow. People will follow. I, I'm convinced of it. What does it mean for Sabrina Greenland to set a trend, to be a something different, something new. Especially when you're outwardly, you can see the domestic violence on your face. It means everything. It means take a look at my life. It's right here. It's bold. It's it's in your face. And um, ask me anything. Let's talk about it. I'm here. I've healed. I'm not perfect. I still have a lot of healing to go. Sabrina Greenlee is a woman on a crusade. I want the world to know my name. I want my name to stand for hurt, pain, joy, but most of all, healing, happiness, smiling, helpful. I want all of those things to be under the definition of my name. I want to leave a legacy that they tried to take her life. They left her for dead. She's been beaten multiple times. But she gets back up and she is a fighter and she is not going to stop no matter what. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.